Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Let's talk for a moment about a scam that's been going on in the United States ever since the 1980s when Ronald Reagan came into office and dropped the top income tax bracket down from 74% down to 25% and 18 times raised taxes on average working people. Did away with the tax deduction for your car loan, did away with the tax deduction for your, for your credit card loan. Uh, did, added a tax to your Social Security income, added a tax to unemployment income, uh, a whole bunch of things like this. And this has been going on. And by the way, Democrats have been playing this game as well as Republicans over the years. Although in this particular case, the Trump tax cut, this was 100% Republicans. But ProPublica, you know, it's a nonprofit news organization. And they somehow have gotten these uh, IRS files. They're, they're the ones who broke the big story last uh, month about how uh, of the, the, the 20 richest people in America, on average paid between 1% and 3% income taxes, and more than half of them paid nothing in income taxes. And these are people who are making literally hundreds of millions of dollars a year, in some cases billions of dollars a year, paying no taxes whatsoever. Well, it turns out that there's a backstory to this that ProPublica lays out. And you know, we just need to, you know, whether it's a Republican doing it or a Democrat doing it, this is something that we need to fix. In November of 2017, they're noting, as uh, the Trump administration was pushing to get their tax cut through Congress, Senator Ron Johnson, the Republican from Wisconsin, came out and said he wasn't going to vote for it. In fact, his verbatim quote was, if they can pass it without me, let them. Which just created like, you know, on the, on the, on the GOP side, just created like, oh my God, what are we going to do? They had to pass it by reconciliation. They, the Democrats are not going along with this at all. And it was entirely, you know, this, this tax cut that 83% of all benefits went to the top 1% of Americans. But it turns out it's even worse than that. But anyhow, Ron Johnson says, I'm not going to do it. So they said, you know, well, what do you want? ProPublica writes, Johnson's demand was simple. In exchange for his vote, the bill must sweeten the tax breaks for a particular class of companies called pass-through corporations. He says, they are the engines of innovation. 
Donald Trump called, President Trump called Ron John, Senator Johnson and said, you know, we need your support. We can't pass this without your vote. And Johnson said, fine, just, you know, cut the taxes on the pass-through companies. And so Trump said, okay, fine. And he directed his legislative people to do that. Trump administration said, okay, we're going to add this tax relief for small businesses. Now, let me just read you two paragraphs from this, this uh, report by ProPublica. Confidential tax records, however, reveal that Johnson's last-minute maneuver benefited two families more than almost any others in the country, both worth billions and both among the senator's biggest donors. Dick and Liz Uline of the packaging giant Uline, along with roofing magnate Diane Hendricks, together had contributed around $20 million to groups backing Senator Ron Johnson's 2016 re-election campaign. The expanded tax break that Johnson muscled through netted them $215 million in deductions in 2018 alone. At that rate, this is this tax cut that Ron Johnson got written into the law at apparently at their request, could deliver more than half a billion dollars in tax savings just for the Hendricks and Uline families over its eight-year life. But the tax break did more than just that for those two families. In the first year after Trump signed the legislation, just 82 ultra-wealthy households, these are all households worth more than a billion dollars, they collectively walked away with more than $1 billion in total savings. That's $1 billion that was added to our deficit, added to our national debt. You'll recall Trump added $7 trillion to the national debt. The headline, Secret IRS Files Reveal How Much the Ultra-Wealthy Gained by Shaping Trump's Big Beautiful Tax Cut. It's just rolling along. When are we going to stop doing this? When are we going to stop transferring the wealth of America's middle class, of America's working families, to the very, very rich? It's already been over seven, that we can document, over $7 trillion in wealth since the Reagan revolution has gone out of the homes and families and pockets and equity of working class families across America, over $7 trillion into the pockets of fewer than about a thousand very, very, very wealthy families and big corporations in America. Isn't it time for America to say enough already? I am completely over this and I hope you are too. I think we need to start pushing our politicians on this. On the line with us is Chuck Collins, a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, the director of the Institute for Policy Studies program on inequality and the common good, and the co-editor of inequality.org. He's also the author of a new book, The Wealth Hoarders. Uh, IPS-DC.org is the website. You can tweet him at IPS underscore DC or Chuck9921, T-O-1. Chuck, welcome back to the program. We have a worldwide crisis. We're talking here in the United States about trying to vaccinate America, and we're having our own challenges with that. 
But the fact of the matter is, here in the United States, we have enough vaccine to vaccinate every single person without a problem. In fact, vaccines are being wasted and spoiled. They're going out of date all across the South right now. If we don't vaccinate, one of the rationales that's being given is we need to vaccinate Americans to stop new variants from emerging. But if we don't vaccinate the world, the new variants are inevitable. So what do we do? One proposal, and part of it is we've, we've been looking at what's happening to billionaire wealth globally as well. Together with Oxfam, Fighting Inequality Alliance, we put out a report today that shows that the billionaire class, the 2,690 billionaires globally, have seen their wealth go up $5.5 trillion during the pandemic. Whoa! Their wealth went up, their wealth went up more than the previous 15 years, uh, you know, since 2006. So, so our proposal, it's a big, is to levy a emergency pandemic windfall wealth tax, a 99% tax on this segment, this very small, under 3,000 individuals. Uh, we could vaccinate the world uh, and have uh, trillions of dollars left over to provide other forms of COVID relief to help rebuild the global economy. So. So that's wow. one question is, is if anybody's worried about where the money is, we have we, we can tell you where it is. <laughs> I guess so. Um, how does that translate to the United States? The U.S., we have uh, uh, 714 billionaires in the U.S., and their wealth has gone up almost two trillion over this same 17 months. So, uh, you know, the, the, the and, so and again, less than their half wealth of this is happening just here in the U.S. Yeah. The U.S., China, and a few European countries have uh, easily almost half the global billionaires. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, this is a group that's, you know, they, they haven't gotten smarter. They haven't gotten more innovative during the pandemic. They have benefited essentially from having their competition shut down from a marketplace that's betting that they're going to consolidate their economic power going forward. And their gains have just surged while others have lost their lives and livelihoods. So we think a a clawback tax provision is a, is a really good idea. Incidentally, Tom, it would leave this global billionaire group. They'd still have $55 billion more than they did at the beginning of the pandemic. Wow. So you're not even talking about taking all of it. <laughs> it's 99%, you know, it seems. Well, then this, is just the, again, this is just the profits that they made during the pandemic, five point something trillion dollars. Yeah, basically the they profit. started the pandemic as a global group with about $8 trillion. Their wealth went up to 13 and a half trillion in That's 17 months. Breathtaking. That's breathtaking. And the wealth of average Americans, of course, declined, and, and we've got millions of fewer jobs. And are any of the politicians of the world talking about this? I mean, if you're talking about a global system here, this would have to at least originate with the UN, I would think, or at least a consensus among the developed countries of the world. Is anybody taking this seriously? We're calling upon national governments that obviously have the ability to institute such taxes. And several countries, Argentina uh, levied an emergency wealth tax during the pandemic. A number of other countries, it's currently being debated. Hmm. Uh, Senator Bernie Sanders uh, proposed it uh, about a year ago, just looking even at the first year of the pandemic and the trillion plus that went to U.S. billionaires. He proposed a 65 percent U.S. one-time wealth tax to help pay for COVID relief. Um, so it's an idea that's being out there. And I think our, the idea of our report is, look, this really strikes a nerve. People know 
you know, that the wealthy have done well during the pandemic, but they have really no idea how rich the rich have gotten while everyone else's prospects have, have dimmed. So part of releasing this study is to help build support within national governments to levy wealth taxes. And then you've written about this during times of war and national emergencies and the like. It, we've had emergency taxes and, and, of and windfall taxes. So it's truly, you know, there's a historical precedent. For yeah, we did it during the Civil like War. These. We did it during World War One. We did it during World War Two. Arguably, we did it during Vietnam. Chuck Collins, a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies. His new book is The Wealth Hoarders. What's the best website, Chuck, for more information on this or for people who want to support what you're doing? Yeah, check out inequality.org, a website of the Institute for Policy Studies, but it's where you can learn more about sort of the inequality work and campaigns that people can plug into and some of the data and, and, and also the good news, how people are responding to try to reverse these extreme inequalities. Great. Thank you. Inequality.org. We will check it out. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Keep up the great work. You're doing God's work there. Uh, Chuck Collins with uh, Inequality.org. Be sure to check out the website. Hey, let's rock some quantitative easing. On the line with us is Dean Baker, the co-founder and senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. CEPR.net is the website. You can tweet him at CEPRDC or Dean Baker 13. Uh, Dean, welcome back. It's been a while since we've talked, and I find your your analysis on quantitative easing, which you know, please everybody, don't glaze over your eyes with these, you know, <laughs> these economic phrases. This is this is actually a big deal. This this impacts all of us. First of all, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on again, Tom. Oh, it's always a pleasure. So quantitative easing, basically, you know, down to the bottom line here, is when the Fed starts buying bonds, including now corporate bonds, which, I mean, back during the World War II, you point out they were buying federal government bonds, but now they're buying corporate bonds as well. And this kind of lifts the stock market and lifts corporate profits, in particular because their bonds are being purchased. And that seems like it would only benefit rich people. You want to give us a little more of a, a deep dive into what they're doing and why it's of consequence to all of us? Ordinarily, the Fed has acted primarily by controlling the overnight discount rate. This isn't going to mean anything to anyone, but banks are required to have reserves every night. They have to have reserves based on their deposits. Won't go into details, but let's just say 10%. So if you're a huge bank, you have $100 billion on deposit, you have to have $10 billion in reserves. If you don't have that, you borrow that from other banks. So this is the overnight money rate, and that's what the Fed has typically controlled. Use that to, they want to bring about more growth, they lower the rate. If they want to see less growth, presumably to stem inflation, they raise the rate. And that has been what they used through the 80s, the 90s, uh, the, the first decade of, of this century. But you run into a problem. They hit zero. So in the Great Recession, we got that rate to zero. And at that point, you can't really do much further with it. You actually had small negative rates in some European countries. Now we're going into that, but basically zero is a floor on that. So then if you want to further affect the economy, what do you do? Well, you have to try and affect longer-term rates directly, and that means buying bonds. Um, so the Fed always is primarily concerned about longer-term rates because that is what affects the economy. So this is what we're, where I'm saying longer-term rates. 
You have a mortgage. You have a 30-year mortgage, a 15-year mortgage. That's a longer-term rate. You have a five-year car loan. That's a longer-term rate. Those are what directly affects the economy. The overnight money rate, that banks worry about that, but that only indirectly affects the economy. So what they wanted to do was bring bring down longer-term rates. They did as much as they could with the overnight rate, pushed it to zero. So then you got what we refer to as quantitative easing. They buy up government bonds. They buy up mortgage-backed securities issued by Fannie and Freddie. And you mentioned corporate bonds. That was a real departure. That, that was They hadn't done that. I, I'm not sure if they ever had done that in the past, but they did that last year. That program ended at the end of 2020, so they're no longer buying up corporate bonds. But the idea was to reduce the interest rates that people pay on their car loans, that people pay on their mortgages. They have credit card debt, reduces the interest rate people pay on credit card debt. And this creates more jobs. You, you People refinance mortgages, and they freed up, in many cases, thousands of dollars in interest payments. And they use that money to, to buy other things. So this was helping to support the economy in, through the pandemic and continues to help support the economy. Um, one feature, as you say, does tend to drive up the stock market. Other things equal, lower interest rates will give you a higher stock market. But to my view, you know, I'm not a big fan. I want to see the stock market double or what. I'm not, you know, that, that's not something on my agenda. But I'm not going to get upset about that if that's an outcome of trying to create more jobs in the economy. But isn't the risk here, Dean, that by this kind of really unprecedented intervention, um, you know, buying, buy, you know, General Motors and United Airlines bonds and things like that, that uh, in order to sustain the economy and to promote job growth and, and, and you know, all these good, uh, arguably progressive outcomes, that we're creating an economy that's kind of a Potemkin village. It's, it's, it's not really, it doesn't have a real foundation. It's, it's we're addicted to QE, basically. Well, a couple points here. First off, during the pandemic, we had pretty much had to do everything we could to support the economy. Oh, I get that. You know, again, I just, um, but, you know, again, obviously, you know, we all see the numbers, so it's not as though the pandemic's over, but let, let's hope for the moment we're through the worst of it. Um, most of the economy has reopened. So then the question is, okay, will we somehow be better with higher interest rates? And I just have a hard time seeing that argument. So, you know, this story, it's an artificial economy. There isn't a natural economy. So it's not as though we had some natural economy out there and then the Fed came in there and messed it up. I mean, the Fed is there. We have a central bank. Um, There isn't a natural economy that we could pose as a counterexample. So So Friedman and Hayek were wrong. (laughs) There's there's not some magical capitalist floor. It's a very fundamental point that, you know, I think it gives the right way too much credence, because if you juxtapose, oh, we have the government intervening, and then on the other hand, we have the natural economy, you go, well, maybe we should check out this natural economy. You go, no, I'm sorry, there is no natural economy. The government is going to intervene. And all we're arguing about is how best to intervene. Do we want higher rates? Do we want lower rates? I mean, obviously, we intervene in a thousand other ways as well. But it's not as though there's some natural economy out there that the Fed is coming in there and messing up. For example, I, I look at Japan. You know, they've had this kind of 20-year slog is the way it's characterized by some folks, kind of a stagnant economy. But on the other hand, you know, they have a national health care system. They have a, a robust social safety net. College is free. It's not like the people of Japan are suffering greatly. 
Some argue that that's because the, the Japanese central bank had so aggressively intervened in their economy 20 years ago. And I think the Japan story is informative that way because, you know, people aren't suffering there. So they've had slow growth, but that's in part because they've had declining size of their workforce. I mean, that's their population. I mean, it's not that people aren't able to get jobs. They actually have very low unemployment. It's that, you know, people are, you know, they, they had the baby boom story, but it was somewhat earlier than ours. So, you know, they have an older population and a it's declining workforce. Out. Yeah, so it's not it's not like something really horrible has happened there, you know. And again, I just pose the question: Well, suppose the Fed, the, their central bank had been less aggressive and they had higher interest rates. Is there any story you could tell where things would be better off for people in Japan right now? And again, I just find that one very hard to to tell. Yeah. So so uh, this is this is fascinating. We're talking with Dean Baker, the co-founder and senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, CEPR.net. So, Dean, you're, are you suggesting that quantitative easing, that the, that the Federal Reserve uh, Bank intervene, intervening in markets by buying corporate bonds, by basically subsidizing parts of corporate America or supporting, I, I, maybe you couldn't call it a subsidy, is actually not just a strategy that was useful to get us through the crisis of COVID and, and to get us through uh, the 2008, you know, the Bush crash, but that also going forward on a long-term basis, this could be part of a progressive agenda? Well, again, I'm, I'll be a little hesitant on the corporate bond part. So, and mm -hmm. they actually ended that at the end of last year. So that was a special program that was established for the pandemic, right. ended at the end of 220. And, and, you know, again, I'll say I'm a little uncomfortable with that just because you're in effect favoring certain corporations at the expense of because they're not buying every corporate bond, understandably, sure. and they bought packages. Just to be clear, so they weren't going out and buying a GM bond, and you know they bought packages of bonds. But in any case, I'm a little uncomfortable with that for the obvious reason. But the more general process, quantitative easing, is buying government debt, and then they bought Fannie and Freddie their mortgage-backed securities because that's in effect government debt that's guaranteed right. by the government. So right. the, the, the and that's supporting the housing market, lowering the interest rates on uh, on those debt, those bonds, and that indirectly lowers a whole set of interest rates throughout the economy. Right. That's absolutely fascinating. Dean Baker, I, I think probably for the first time I have a, a, a intellectually a better grasp of, of QE and, and, and its consequences. Uh, I, I viewed it uh, probably through that right-wing lens that you were talking about. Dean, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's great talking with you. Good talking to you again. Thanks a lot for having me on. Thank you. Dean Baker, CEPR.net is the Center for Economic and Policy Research website, and you can tweet him at DeanBaker13 or CEPRDC. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, with two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. 
Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Francis in Seattle. Hey, Francis, what's on your mind today? Thanks for listening to KBCS. I was just calling because you've mentioned this several times over the last few weeks, and it brings up to me how people in the North don't realize how much the South was treated like a third world country. Um, I could, I graduated from high school in 1973. I was at the top of a 500 person class where three fourths of the students went to college. I had a national merit scholarship and a bunch of other scholarships, but my scholarships only covered less than half of my college education. So I had to work 30 hours a week because even though college was cheap in Texas, wages were really low. I never right. made more than a third of the federal minimum wage until I moved to Iowa after I graduated. So it just wasn't cheap. And then it, it also, there's other ways that the South was an example for what they're trying to do to the rest of us, um, to the rest of the country. Because you had a caller earlier who talked about going to medical school and it being so cheap. Mm-hmm. I went to the medical school at the same time she did. And unfortunately for me, I didn't graduate before Ronald Reagan took office. So when I started, I was one of the few people in my class that got the kind of loan they could give to poor people. Because I grew up in a house where we ran out of food before the end of the month. And would have never gotten to college to medical school without the women's movement. So mm-hmm. um, despite how good my grades were. Um, so when I started and paid to pay all this money for for medical school, my terms were the same as the rich kids got. What she got was called a guaranteed student loan, 3% interest, no interest for up to seven years if you were still in training. As soon as Reagan got in, they changed the terms on the poor students' loans, and they changed them from uh, 3, 3% interest to market rate interest, which in around 1980 was 12 to 15%. Right. And they got, a, they got rid of the no no accumulation of interest while you were still in training. So all the students in my class graduated after they got out of their residency with about a $20,000 debt. And my debt was over $100,000. Wow. Wow. So they just, you know, people so look down on the South and say they don't want to be like the South. But the South has been, before they could take jobs out of the country, you know, before Nixon and... Mm -hmm. China most favored trade status. The South, because they lost the Civil War, and they deserve to lose the Civil War. I'm not saying that at all. But they were treated like a third world country and just yeah. abused. I worked at the Texas Instruments plant in college because it was the best paying job I could get in Lubbock, Texas, unless I wanted to put on a bunny suit and serve drinks, which I would never do. I would have killed the first guy that put his hands on my butt. So which ha- I tried a restaurant job once and that's what happened like yeah. at least three times an hour. Yeah. So I, um, 
I went to work at the Texas Instruments plant. I was making slightly over half the federal minimum wage at the Texas Instruments plant, even though Texas Instruments sent stuff all over the world and was definitely involved in interstate commerce. But it just took a lot of lawsuits to make yeah. it happen. No, and the and politicians, Francis, who were most opposed to, to even having a minimum wage, much less increasing it, were by and large the Southern politicians back then. That's right, because when you have, when you're treated like a third world, then it's like that Wilkinson and Pickett stuff. There's just more kiss up, kick down behavior. Yep, yep, absolutely. Alfredo in Mountain View, California. Hey, Alfredo, what's on your mind today? You know, earlier you were talking to uh, an economist uh, about the stock market. Yeah, um, Dean Baker. If I re- yeah, if I recall in the 1930s, what caused the stock crash was uh, because companies were being allowed to, to do stock buybacks. And uh, uh, thereafter, the government banned stock buybacks because of that reason. But recently, I think when Trump got into office, companies be, start doing the stock buybacks again. Actually, Reagan legalized it. Yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. A couple with that, uh, if you look at the S&P 500, for example, the P.E. ratio on the S&P 500 historically has been around 16, 16 and a half times earnings. Now it's around 22 and a half times earnings. Uh, and couple that with the, the Fed uh, buying $120 billion every month uh, uh, of bonds and, and so on. In my opinion, what we have here is, is a huge bubble. Mm-hmm. I wish you could ask Dr. Uh, uh, Professor Wolf about this because it doesn't make sense to me at all. Yeah, yeah, Professor Wolf was uh, on vacation this week. I, I think that, I'll just give you my personal opinion for what it's worth, you're right, the P.E. ratio is higher than, than normal, which is an indicator of, a, of an over, what is it, overbought market, I, I believe. I, I always mix up well, overbought and oversold. Uh, you know, too many people jumping into the stock market with too much money right now. But the problem is that because you can't, I mean, I, 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 you know, my savings account in the bank uh, is paying me like four cents a month. <laughs> you know I mean? It's like it's like nothing, right? Um, you, you can't. There's no place else to put your money right now. And but so, the, 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 yeah, the companies cannot justify the earnings in the future because 22 times earnings uh, is is ridiculous. How can they maintain that? It's, it's unsustainable. So, well, it's I a reflection of the demand all, in the marketplace for stocks. For equities. Yeah, yeah. And, well, when and, and as long as there's that demand, I mean, you know, if, if we start having inflation, I, I, and I think this is, this is why they're saying, you know, if, if, if inflation starts going up and thus interest rates start going up to try to tame it, uh, as interest yeah. rates go up, then the amount of money that they pay on CDs and, and, and savings accounts and money market funds will go up, and people will start moving money out of the stock market and into bonds and other you know, financial instruments just to get safe interest. And that will then deflate that demand for stocks, and the P.E. ratio will go back down to 16, um, or well, you know, I, somewhere in that neighborhood. I, I think, yeah, I think when the Fed pulls out all this money uh, out of the of this economy, that bubble is going to be deflate, bad. I think. I, I agree. Bad. But Alfredo, what Dean was saying is they're never going to do it, which is where it gets real interesting. Alfredo, i got to run, but thank you for the call. Michael in Bangor, Maine. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today? Hardcore conservative who enjoys talking to you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was listening to you and Dean Baker, 
and I also listened to your initial conversation about neo neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. I think being an economics, I am in a neoliberalism with a dash of Austrian market. Uh, well, neoliberalism, you know, grew out of Hayek. You know, it's correct and von Mises. Correct. Yes, and then it went to Friedman in the United right. States in the Chicago School. Yep. And at at some point, it went off the rails. And I'll say this just so that we can get into the conversation quickly. We, as conservative economists or students of economy and of Hayek and Friedman, never imagined governmental um, uh, intimacy with corporations in terms of subsidies and that sort of thing. It's a direct contradiction of the concepts of free market and opening everything to the competition of the market. So I think you and I can agree that if you're, if you're going to subsidize people on welfare, uh, that's a price that society has to pay. It's going to result in deficit spending because you're getting no value back. Unless you, you pay know, for it with taxes. Correct. But then taxes are also a depletion on the ability of the market to flourish because, it, because you're taking away the distribution of power to spend. If that's the case, then why was it that during the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and the first few years of the 80s, when the top tax rate was between 74 and 92 percent, we had the strongest economic growth in the history of the United States? Because you also had the ability to deduct so much of that. Deductions have to be played into that. It's not the tax rate. We did not see billionaires popping up. You know, there were literally no billionaires during the Reagan administration. They started popping up around the, in, in the 90s. I mean, billionaires are a relatively, and I get it, you know, a certain amount of that is the result of inflation. But, the, you know, this mind-boggling wealth, you know, you've got, you know, Jeff Bezos and the five Walton heirs combined have, have more wealth than, you know, some some mind body, you know, like half the rest of the planet. Uh, you know, it's just, this did not happen when high taxes were acting as a stabilizer on the economy. When, when, well, when your income went over $3 million a year, you started getting hit with a 74% tax rate. Right. Here's what I'll say about that. The unique flaw in the neoliberalism thought process was and, and I'm a supporter of it. Okay, was the concept of of globalization? Yeah, I that agree. Was the I agree? I absolutely agree. Was, but but let me let me just ask you another question here, Michael. I, it was a fascinating conversation, by the way. Um, in 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 the, my understanding, the way that I look at this is that you can drive an economy in one of two directions. You can drive an economy in a way that that gives most of the power of the economy and therefore most of the benefits of the economy to the ownership class, basically to the capital class, which is what neoliberalism does. Or you can drive an economy in a way that gives, not necessarily most, but much of the power or more power to the worker class, which is what FDR and LBJ did and is the way our economy was running from 1933 to 1981. And it's, you know, people, rich people were still rich and rich people were still getting rich. They just weren't getting fabulously rich because, you know, working class people were, you know, we saw a greater growth in the American middle class during that 30, 40 year period than ever before in history. And the only thing that comes close to it is what China has done since we moved all our factories over there. Isn't there something to be said for shifting power to labor, to bringing back labor unions? Not without uh, suffering the, the, uh, the, the horrible 
deficits that come from government coercion because it won't happen naturally. Deficits have nothing to do with how much companies pay their employees. That's taxes. No, 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 no. I didn't say I wasn't talking about monetary or fiscal deficits. I was talking about the limitations on society. If the only way that you're going to have labor have the same power as ownership is by government coercion. It doesn't happen in any other way. Everything is government coercion, Michael. You can't create a corporation without going to a to a state secretary of state and filing your papers. No, I agree with government it. establishes the rules of the game of capitalism. Not wanting to sound too much like an old fart, but when I was growing up in the 1950s and early 60s in, in South Lansing, Michigan, um, you know, I was living in a, a neighborhood of, of you know single family, but you know, two and three bedroom houses with one bathroom, and you know, and, and, and I mean, my dad bought the house for thirteen thousand dollars in 1956, and 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 it's and it's probably worth eighty thousand now, and and. The, the neighborhood that I was in, I knew on my block, there was probably 20, 30 houses on our block. I knew three people who had second, you know, summer homes up in northern Michigan, up in the woods. They were all working at General Motors. I only knew there, there was one house, that, you know, where a guy was a dentist. And he was the only professional in the entire neighborhood. Everybody else was blue collar. And they took vacations. They had new cars. They had summer homes. All that is gone now because labor got wiped out by neoliberalism and Reaganism. How is that good? You, by the way, we have 15 seconds here. We're going to hit a break. Okay. Let me just put this point to you, and I'd love to be able to call back and talk more because I think we can have a very detailed conversation. Okay. The, the difference between what Baker um, and I think you are postulating and Hayek is not whether government should be involved. The question is how much. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay, That's Michael, let's let's agree to have that conversation next week. We'll continue it. Michael, thank you very much in Bangor, Maine. Holly in Washington, D.C. Hey, Holly, what's up? Well, every time I hear this statement, even from blessed Bernie's mouth, that we're the richest country in the world, my, my, we are. my brow furrows. And so I don't really understand what the metric is, but it seems like it's a metric that doesn't really apply to all of the citizens of this country. That's correct. And I just, and I just, uh, you know, it's kind of a false, kind of a false premise. I mean, if, and if you took the industrial uh, war machine out of it, making all and selling all these weapons, where would that leave us with GDP? Assuming that's what the metric is, can you say anything about that? Yeah, if if you look at the total wealth owned by Americans and American corporations, it exceeds that of any other country in the world. If you look at the wealth of the working class of the United States, we are near the bottom of the uh, OECD countries, not at the bottom. I mean, I, I believe Costa Rica is at the bottom. That's 34 richest countries in the world. Um, but uh, you know, if you're simply looking at the working class uh, or at the bottom 90% even, you find that the United States is below all the Scandinavian countries, I believe all the Northern European countries. Um, we may be in the neighborhood of Greece. I mean, some, a lot of these numbers are very, very fluid, particularly with COVID and everything. And if you look at, you know, who's got the most billionaires, the United States has the most billionaires of any other country in the world. I think we have uh, over 700 of them now, maybe over 800. Um, in fact, I saw a number of the, uh, a couple, a week or two ago that was over 1,000. I don't know if it's accurate or not, but we've got more billionaires yeah. than anybody yeah. else. And so that skews our numbers. 
But you know, we. Yeah. But even if billionaires, even if if it's not money that's well distributed in the United States, I think the point that Bernie would make in the in this kind of a situation, and that I would certainly you know make and agree with, is that if we have this much money in aggregate, and if we were to yeah. begin taxing our billionaires the way that we were prior to Reagan, there would be enough money. And and if we were to go back to having unions and start paying our workers the way that we were prior mm -hmm. to Reagan, then our middle yeah. class would be strong and healthy, and we would not only be the richest country in the world still, but we would also have the most prosperous middle class in the world. We don't have that anymore as a result of Reaganism. That was my, my rant yesterday in my piece about you know, the death of neoliberalism uh, over at Hartman Report. It's, it, uh, it's just, you know, when you look at the history of this, and I think most people, particularly people under 40, just don't know this history at all. They didn't live it. And it's not mm -hmm. largely taught in our schools. It's, it's considered politically incorrect to point out the crimes of the Reagan, the economic crimes against America of the Reagan administration and all the yeah. neoliberal yeah. administrations that have followed, which is literally every president up until this day. So, Holly, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Your, your point is so trenchant. It's so brilliant. Joel in Seattle. Hey, Joel, what's on your mind? I think there's a donut hole in the CARES Act regarding those of us who would like to refinance our mortgages. And hmm. I've been denied three times. Um, and I said, well, what about the CARES Act? I mean, I've got a FICO of 801. What's, what's going on here? Uh, well, you just didn't make enough last year. So I was sick with COVID. What about the CARES Act? And they said, well, you have to be underwater on your mortgage. You know, that's what I'm not. I, I spent a year of savings um, to keep myself in shape, which I'm supposed to do as a good citizen, I thought, you know, have that in reserve. And um, they said, you know, you just didn't earn enough, and the CARES Act doesn't cover people who aren't underwater. I mean, I owe 90% of my house, and yet I'd like to change my monthly nut. I don't want a handout. They, two of them said there's free money from the government. I said, I want, there's no such thing as free money, and I don't want free money. I'm an ultra-left-wing liberal. I'm painting a wall right now working, and I don't want a handout. I just want to re—I want somebody for 10 minutes to sit in front of a computer with, a, with one of these usury corporations— and refinance my loan so I can lower my monthly amount by four hundred dollars. Yeah. That would have a big impact on my life. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and also I would get the rate, which would also have a big impact on my life going forward. And we bailed out this industry two thousand eight to the tune of billions of dollars, yeah. golden parachutes, giant bonuses, not a single per block. And I can't get anything but a form letter back from PM and P on this. It's very frustrating. I and sure I like other listeners who who are in my shoes. I'm sure there are millions of us to. Call your representatives and let them know. Because yeah. I took a hit with COVID and I lost a bunch of earnings. I share your frustration, Joel. There is a, um, a, a worldview, an ideology, a perspective that uh, typically Republicans, but also some conservative Democrats, bring to these kinds of issues that is, uh, you know, very, very kind of dog chasing its tail, you know. Uh, 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 for example, uh, when my mom uh, had Alzheimer's and we were looking at the possibility of putting her in a facility that could you know, deal with her, we found that to have Medicaid pay for that, she would have to be completely bankrupt. And she still right, owned right. The, the house that my dad you know, bought for 15 grand when, when, you know, in, the, in the 1950s, and it's probably worth 80 or $90,000 then. And and we would have had to sell the house. We would have had to, you know, we would have had to literally just exhaust every penny that she had in order for her to qualify for Medicaid. And and not only that, you have to do it two years in advance. You still can't. You still couldn't get Medicaid for another two years. It's like we've right. got all these weird punitive hoops 
that we force people through to to qualify for benefits that really should be available to the middle class, to working class people who are falling on hard times, who are suffering from terrible diseases, or as as in your case, are you know are, are out of work because of a damn pandemic. And well, I worked sick on my feet, but I couldn't put down forty hours a week and really make what I normally do. Yeah, it's and just, I also I also wrote checks to the tune of two hundred fifty thousand dollars for my mother's alzheimer's that lasted five years wow. yeah so you know what i'm talking so i can about. relate with you completely hey two real quick things i'd like to do a thank you to kenyatta in la i'm a contractor and i used to call people boss until i heard him tell us that that really wasn't the coolest thing to do and it had connotations i didn't ever even realize that and i'm so grateful that he spoke up on that and said something okay. and um and lastly, I got a bumper sticker on my car. It's got a picture of Foghorn Leghorn, and it says, the last Republican I had respect for. <laughs> I love it. You have to be a certain age to understand that one, but I love it. Joel, thank you. It's all good. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. good talking to you. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Mark in Valley, Washington. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? Well... Tom, I think the Republicans are going to get away with it just from the track record of the Democrats rolling over and playing dead since Reagan. And let me make a quick prediction. Not only are they going to get away with it, they're going to pass this cheap infrastructure bill. They're going to kill the expensive one. And then in the midterms, they're going to run a bipartisanship infrastructure bill that they helped pass. I, I, I believe that that's their strategy, Mark, whether they'll pull it off. I mean, you've got the, the, the uh, Congressional Progressive Caucus in the House that's saying, you're not going to get our vote unless it's both. Let's hope they stick to that. Yeah, uh, they're going to have to. And, you know, Greg Sargent wrote a great piece about this in The Washington Post yesterday, and I, w I was ranting about it yesterday as well, that, you know, right now, and, and, and President Biden is all in on this. You know, he's saying, yes, let's do both. It's a two-track process. We can make this happen. Um, so, you know. Yeah, we'll but see. you got to get Manchin and Cinema along, and, and Republicans are sucking up to them big time. Oh yeah, yeah, and as as are the big donors, but but Mansion and Cinema have staked their reputation now on this one trillion dollar, uh, you know, bipartisan bill, and if they 
can't get that through. That's a big loss for them. That's a, 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 almost a humiliation for them. And if the progressives hold tight in the House, they're going to say, yeah, you know, Mansion and Cinema will give you what you want. And Republicans, you know, this dozen or so Republicans who went along with this, we'll give you what you want. We'll give you this legislation that's got, you know, all this public-private partnership and the subsidies of the, of the for-profit energy companies and the subsidies of the for-profit broadband companies and what like, whatnot like that. We'll give you all that. And you've got to give us the three and a half trillion dollars that's actually going to green our infrastructure so we can start reducing our, our carbon footprint and get out from underneath these, uh, you know, 103 degree days like we're having here in, in Portland. Which is, I hope you're right, yeah. but I'm skeptical that that'll happen. Yeah. Well, I share your skepticism, but I'm still hoping. <laughs> I am still hoping. I keep hope too, Tom, but it's fading. It's yeah, fading. there you go. We'll see. We'll see. You know, we got a couple of weeks here, Mark. Mark, thank you for the call. Steve in North Shore, Massachusetts. Hey, Steve, thanks for watching us on Facebook Live. What's up? I really appreciate that discussion you had about quantitative easing earlier, and it really hit a hot button with me. I guess I, I don't hear about it enough, the fact that the feds are printing $120 billion a month and handing it over to the, the banks and stock market. Anyway. Uh, well, apparently the stock market part of that ended at the end of last year. Mortgage-backed securities, I don't know if that's really stocks, but yeah. anyway, they're... they're, they're it's one of the three markets that these guys play in, you know, uh, stocks, bonds, and real estate. Yeah. I wanted to mention that Frontline had an expose a couple weeks ago called The Power of the Fed, and it's a great um, expose on where this money goes and what it does to the markets. Personally, I think that... Uh, the, with the mortgage-backed securities, it increases the home prices and makes them unreachable for new home buyers. Well, the flip um, side of that, Steve, is that the reason home prices are going up is because demand is going up and because with lower interest rates, people can afford larger, you know, they can afford more house or a higher priced house um, because their monthly payments are lower. And, and people, you know, when people are thinking about buying a house, they're thinking in terms of what's it going to cost me every month, not, you know, do I have to write a $300,000 check? And right. so, you know, low interest rates are going to drive up housing prices. There's just no way around that. Uh, a friend of mine's daughter has just bought a home for a million dollars near Boston. Yeah, so. it's, it's mind-boggling. It's, it's, and the, the part about the, um, you know, corporate, corporate injection of money is, I think that there's a lot of corporations out there, big corporations that are being propped up, and they're actually zombie companies. Um, and I think this stifles innovation. I think, you know, they can use this money to buy startups, and we don't see that many startups, um, you know, happening now. Um, I just think it stifles innovation. I, I just wanted to mention one other thing. Mm -hmm. um, in the CARES Act, I think it was Steve Mnuchin, I call him Munchkin, um, had a slush fund of about $600 billion. And part, uh, most of that money was to be used for the plunge protection team. Now, I was back uh, years ago, I was do, uh, day trading currencies and that kind of thing. And, you know, you, you get into fundamentals and technicals and Fibonacci sequences. But, you know, you can just throw that all out the window with the plunge protection team because, as soon as the market starts to dive down, they jump in there and they start to inject money. With federal so, money, yeah. 
Yeah, and it's not it's not a real scenario. I don't um, think that that's how it played out, though. I mean, Mnuchin started out saying, I'm not going to tell you guys where this money goes. And that lasted about three weeks. And then the dam broke and, and we discovered that the money was, you know, a lot of that money was going to big banks. And, of course, Mnuchin is not only a banker, but in my opinion, a criminal banker. He's, you know, one of the guys who was responsible for thousands of people losing their homes in, in uh, California when he was running that that uh, the banking organization in California. Uh, he was the yeah. foreclosure king was his title. I mean, you know, uh, you know what people called him. Um, but but ultimately, it wasn't it wasn't going into the stock market, as far as I could tell. It was going actually into corporations, which is arguably just as bad. But we uh, haven't had a good market correction. Yeah. We have not had that, and it's all because of injection. Probably true. Diane in Charleston, South Carolina. Hey, Diane, what's on your mind today? Hi, I want to respond to an earlier caller. He said that giving people money is counterproductive. Maybe, I hope he's listening. First of all, welfare was created for white people during the Depression. Yep. And the, what they used to get was this little box which had, like, canned surplus food in it. And in the 60s, they decided to allow people to go into stores and buy the food that they wanted. So they got the uh, food stamps. Now they have the EBT cards. Yep. The program helps the farmers because it creates a demand for products, which is no longer a great demand, particularly milk and cereal. Yeah, you're right. And that's why it's funded by the Agriculture Department. Right. And if you go into a supermarket in a, a mixed-income area. I grew up in Harlem, which is a mixed-income area. We have people on welfare living there, and we had lawyers living there, or it have. There is a whole section for people with their EBT cards and the WIC program, the Women, Infants, and Children's program. It creates money for the store owner, and it also creates jobs. If they eliminated these programs, those stores would have to lay off a number of their workers because their, their income would go down. I agree. And let me add to that, Diane. When I was six years old, my dad was uh, trying to make a living selling uh, vacuum cleaners and, and mm -hmm. World Book Encyclopedias door to door, and he was not making it. And so we used to go to what I, my brothers and I called the cheese store. And it was the, it was the, it was the Michigan, you know, uh, uh, it, was, it, was, it was surplus milk, there was surplus cheese, there was powdered milk, there was these giant five-pound blocks of American cheese. Um, there was 25-pound uh, bags of noodles of macaroni, um, and, and I still have a love-hate relationship with macaroni and cheese as a result of that. But it kept us alive. It kept us fed. It kept us, it wasn't the best nutrition in the world, but it kept us going. And that's an important thing, too. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely right. So it does create jobs, and it creates money, and it creates income for people. Yes, absolutely. Very, very well put. Diane, thank you. Thank you very much for that. I, I appreciate the contribution. Susan in Saratoga Springs, New York. Hey, Susan, what's on your mind? You know, I watch Jimmy Dore once in a while. He's good entertainment, and he makes some good points, too, you know, and Aaron Maté. And he made this big, you know, big story. Well, he's got this theory that the reason housing is going up so quickly, the prices are just like a bubble, is because hedge funds in Wall Street are investing into these multiple properties, rental properties. Yeah, Charles Koch has jumped into, into residential real estate, as have Chinese investors in a big way. Yeah. 
So it does make sense to a certain extent. Yeah, it does. And and I think that, uh, in fact, I've said on this program numerous times over the years that I think that we should follow the model that a number of other countries have, which is you may not buy real estate in our country if you are not a citizen. Or if you do, there are some very serious constraints on what you can do with that property, to whom you could sell it, and all those kind of things. About 10% of all the real estate in the United States is not owned by Americans. And that's okay. mind-boggling when you consider it. And then you've got, you know, like I said, Charles Koch has now moved into the real estate market. And in fact, he's uh, big in rental real estate, which might be why some of the right-wing uh, organizations that he and his friends fund are uh, opposed to extending the, the eviction moratorium. Um, there, right. at least that's being speculated in the media. And, and yeah. yeah, and these, these big guys, and the hedge funds are jumping into it. I, I, I just see hedge funds as as parasites. They don't serve any useful purpose other than to make a small number of people who know how to game the system insanely rich. And, uh, you know, I got a a real problem with it. Yeah, so I do. I do believe that. Now, I live live up in Saratoga Springs, New York, which is a very affluent area. Mm -hmm. The houses that used to sell for 50,000, 25 years ago are worth a million now. So a lot of New York City people are moving up here, getting out of the city. They want to live you know, in a, a country, you know, Skidmore is here. It's a very artsy-fartsy race horse area. I'm sure you've heard of Saratoga yeah. Springs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've and, been there, um, actually. I mean, it's incredible that, you know, so many people I know, older people now, I'm retired. I'm 64. I take care of an autistic son. But a lot of us were just getting so pushed out of the housing market. The people lived there all their lives, can't make the rent. You know, cause, you know, a lot of them are on Social Security. They got rid of their houses or they lost yeah. their houses. And it's, it's scary to think that, it could be a way of possibly making almost like a serfdom in our country where, you know, the middle class people have to pay rent. They have to get and their rent. And it's not rent. just happening in New York, Susan. I mean, you know, it, it's I, I Louise and I bought a, a floating home here in, uh, in Portland about 15 years ago, and it's now worth almost five times what we paid for it. It's not Absolutely. ours anymore. I mean, but it's you know, I, I saw it was went on the market a while ago. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, just people I know, you know, who bought houses 10, 15 years ago here in Portland for 150, 200, $250,000. Those houses are now going for 500, 600, $700,000. That's doing Wall Street also, you know, but yep. I yep. mean, it's just pushing young working class people, you know, guy who's a plumber, you know. I mean, yep. No, everybody's being pushed out. I'm with you. House. Kevin in Ontario, Canada. Hey, Kevin, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's on your mind today? Yes, I was wondering your thoughts on uh, binary economics, Tom. I am not familiar with binary economics. I think it was originally by Louis Kelso. Robert Ashford uh, also done it. It separates capital and labor. And the problem is the um, poor people, they don't have capital. And we need to get capital into their hands. So, so, so that they can, so, too, so how do you do can it? have I- income. Um, there's like ESOPs program, which employee shared option. ownership program. Right. Yes, that's one way. Well, so um, it sounds like this is a variation on on, on uh, co-ops. Uh, you know, in my book Threshold, the last chapter, Louise and I went to Spain and visited the Mondragon Worker Co-op, which is a five billion dollar multinational. Actually, I think it's like $45 billion now. The, the, the operation just in the city of Mondragon was $5 billion. And yeah, uh, it's entirely that, work-around. That, that, that's um, more socialism. The, the other one, one was actually Louis Kelso. He wrote a Capitalist Manifesto. Mm-hmm. 
So you're and, saying and, build and this so, into capitalism so, rather than rather than doing worker co-ops, let workers buy into for-profit corporations that they work for as part of their compensation. Well, well sometimes it's really hard to change this system. Sure. Um, like like we we, we uh, want to tax the rich, right? Um, uh, that's not the right way to do it because it's it's very hard to tax them. They have loopholes, offshore banking accounts, and all that. You know. Mm-hmm. So this is a way of giving average working people access to the same equity benefits that capitalists have. Yes, we all we, we all need to share in the resources of, of the country. Yeah, I like it, Kevin. I'm, you, you've given me something to uh, spend some time with the search engine this afternoon. Thank you. Michael in Las Vegas. Hey, Michael, what's up? I want to thank Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, our cabinet, Democrats in Congress, for helping rescue the economy from the depths of hell the GQP and former guy plunged the economy into. I say Jen Psaki deserves a raise because she is one amazing woman. Oh, yeah. our, our Olympic athletes love America way more than the former guy and the GQP combined. I'd like Kathy Griffin to know we all love her and hope she gets well because cancer sucks. You brought up yesterday about how we should have a law that states that investors overseas should not be able to buy up real estate. And I know that we're, you know, on limited time, but I have personal story. My partner and I were actually on a board of a homeowners association here in Las Vegas. He was on there first. The majority of our homeowners were actually investors that didn't even live inside the community. Some had bought their home sight unseen. They had a management company here in town she eventually hopped on the board, the property manager, because she was also a homeowner, but she managed 40-plus properties out of a 283-home neighborhood. And these were all owned by all- passive investors? Some homeowners that occupied, like we did, but correct, yeah, the majority of them And what percentage um, of that was foreign investors? investors? Out of the 283, it was about um, almost 20%. Wow. Of, uh, yeah, we had we had Canadians, we had Israelis, and the majority of overseas investors were Chinese. Yeah. Um, but it was just crazy because she has a property management company um, and a real estate company here in Las Vegas, and they would buy a bunch of homes for cash. She said that um, she and her father, they had a bunch of different LLCs, um, They owned over like 200 properties here in the Las Vegas area in -hmm. California. Mm -hmm. And then also she managed over 2,000 just in the Las Vegas Henderson area here in Clark County. So she had her monthly property management fee that she charged. But she also represented all these homeowners in China. And it was... It was a disaster. We, my partner, unfortunately, made the mistake of saying F investors in a board meeting, Mm -hmm. um, an executive board meeting where it was just the board at one point. And that was Um, the end of that. I'll have to explain more on Friday. But, hey, you're amazing. Please, everybody, get vaccinated. There you go. Thank you for all you do, Tom. Okay? Thank you, Michael. Great to hear from you. And thank you for being with us today. A special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick White, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Arreo, and Carne Verde. All the folks who help make this program work every single day, five days a week. And thank you to you for reaching out to our radio stations and sponsors and letting them know that you're listening. It is really appreciated. It means a lot. 
You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 